This episode is brought to you by the Bowers and Wilkins PX7 S2 wireless headphones. Hear what your music really sounds like. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. Today, we're not talking about hi-fi, we're talking about music, and specifically techno. Now, this story starts with a CD compilation that I waved around in a video a couple of weeks ago, and it's called No Photos on the Dance Floor, a history of Berlin techno from, oh God, I'll, I'll get shot if I get this wrong, 1990, roughly to today. And that compilation was compiled by a chap called Heiko Hoffman, and he also, well, before the compilation came out, he'd also curated an exhibition in Berlin about, I guess, sort of, would you say techno club culture, Heiko? Is that what you would Yes. I mean, uh, or club culture in general, but with a focus on techno clubs. Right. So our guest today is Heiko Hoffman. Welcome, Heiko. Hello. Welcome. And so can you tell us a bit about the exhibition and the, and the, and the book and the CD? Yes, I, I, I can. So like all of that is, is is linked together and it basically um starts with how i grew up in 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 west berlin and how i experienced um the techno scene so i was lucky enough to be of an age where i was a teenager in west berlin when the fall came down mm. and um was that 89 that, right that was in 89 mm -hmm. um in november and that didn't just mean that it was a big change in in society and in history it also meant that it was a big change in music and in nightlife culture for a whole generation, including me. So if, if, if someone would tell you today that in a couple of months' time, uh, South Korea and North Korea would reunite and there would be a radically new form of music that the mm. youth of Korea, North and South, would come together to experience in completely new spaces, you would probably think, well, that's completely utopian. And that's that's what happened um, now 33 years ago hmm. in Berlin, that there was really a radical new form of music coming along and that teenagers from the East and West would spend um, their nights in those abandoned uh, places um, and also dance and experience music in a very different way from going to discotheques just a couple of months uh, previously. So... This experience of um, this early techno scene in Berlin, it really changed not just the music that I was listening to, it also changed the friends that I made, it mm. changed the work that I would then um, go into. And that led me, yeah, 30 years later to wanting to do this exhibition on the history of Berlin nightlife since the fall of the wall. Because it was a story that hadn't really been told in, in photography and video art yet. And I realized, although, I mean, the title, No Photos on the Dance Floor, is a direct relation to that in most Berlin clubs, it's forbidden to take photos. Mm -hmm. So you usually get these stickers on your camera phone and um, are kicked out of the club if you remove them and take pictures. But there's still quite a lot of uh, photography that has been done in clubs, usually from photographers or artists that um, are part of that scene or part of that club's community. So they didn't feel like um, 
photojournalists or people coming from the scene as a voyeurist from the outside, but those photos are really coming from within that scene. And so I told that story through the exhibition. It was accompanied by a catalog and, and a book with essays on the club history in Berlin and then followed up last year by a compilation where I focused more on the history of um, techno music coming out from Berlin by mm. Berlin producers on Berlin labels um, Yeah, over the last 30 years. Right. Okay. And then you had a book in between as well that also mm -hmm. showed the photographs and things like that. Okay. Now, I guess we need to explain, or <laughs> you need to explain, yeah. Ico. Okay. For, for the uninitiated, what is techno? Uh, so it's not it's, an easy question. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not an easy question, but um, maybe one way of explaining it is um, by, by coming back to a famous quote that um, Derek May, one of the founders of, of Detroit Techno, gave. And he said, the, this music is just like Detroit. It's a complete mistake. It's like George Clinton and Kraftwerk are stuck in an elevator with only a sequencer to keep them company. Hmm. And um, this is a quote from the late 1980s. Hmm. And techno has its roots in the city of Detroit. And at There were various influences before that. So Kraftwerk were important, then the electronic Euro disco of George Moroda, funk music from uh, George Clinton's bands, Parliament and Funkadelic, mm -hmm. also UK synth pop. But all of these kind of music came together in Detroit in the mid to late 80s, also mm -hmm. amplified by a local DJ called the Electrifying Mojo, who was one of the few DJs in the United States back then to play a lot of European synth uh, pop for a predominantly um, young black American audience. And that had a huge impact on, on this generation of musicians. And they came up with this unique combination of sounds. So, I mean, sometimes people use techno as an overall name for electronic dance music. But if you want to be more specific and say, for example, what's the difference between, let's say, techno and house music, um, techno is really dominated by a very heavy four on the four kick drum. It's also usually faster than house music between 120 and 150 BPM. Mm -hmm. It's got a stronger emphasis on like a minimalist rhythm. It's mostly instrumental, not having vocals. It's more abstract and less sample-based than, mm -hmm. than house music. And also house music, which preceded techno for a couple of years uh, coming out of Chicago and New York, had a more direct influence from disco music. And um, techno music has less outside references to the history of music. It's more abstract, uh, more futuristic sounding. Right. And it's, I guess it's more, Yeah, futuristic is the right word, isn't it? It's, it's more sort of mechanical machine music than it is mm -hmm. sort of soulful, uh, yeah, like as you say, disco or soul or, or I, I guess R&B infused. I mean, when the wall fell in 89, I, I remember that Inner City's Good Life was an, an enormous hit in yes. the UK. And you couldn't move for hearing that song. But that, to me, is one of those kind of nexus points. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's all, it's like a, it's a bit, It's mainly what I would call house music, but also pop music. But it also had some seeds of techno in it, especially in the vast array of remixes that were done around that release, certainly in the UK. Yes, and the person who produced that track, uh, Kevin Saunders, and mm -hmm. he's considered one of the founding fathers of techno, not just 
for the music that he did with um, Inner City, but also a lot of other aliases. But that track in particular, I mean, that's quite a typical, more traditional dance song in a certain way that you can mm -hmm. sing along with it. That, yes. um, it has this house feel, but maybe also regarding the instrumentation, because a lot of it is also due to the drum machines and synthesizers that are used in, in, in techno. It mm -hmm. is also techno. So, for example, Roland drum machines from the early 80s, the 808 and the 909 are very important to techno. Mm -hmm. And then certain synths, um, mostly equipment that was a couple of years old and was mostly available more secondhand models on thrift stores so that young people could actually afford them. They were not state-of-the-art machines that you would be getting at the late 80s when this music was being made right okay so you mentioned kevin saunderson as being one of the the early sort of forefathers of techno i mean who else was involved I mean, was, was kevin in in chicago or detroit no he was in in, in detroit and at okay. that time he was also quite often um going to new york and going to the big clubs um in new york but we also have to mention um juan atkins um who's mm -hmm usually considered the founding father of Detroit techno. He first had a group called Cybertron that was like pioneering electro sounds. And then with his own project, Model 500, um, mm. basically laying the foundation with the track No UFOs for what we consider uh, techno. But then there's also a couple of producers that people usually talk less about, like Eddie Folks, Suburban Night, and then in the second generation of musicians from from Detroit, of course, Underground Resistance, mm. who included early on um, DJs and producers like Jeff Mills and Robert Hood, who are still very active uh, today. Mm -hmm. And um, then also Carl Craig, um, Kenny Larkin. So those are kind of names are, are people who in the mid to late 80s and then early 90s really pioneered that sound in Detroit. So would you say that the... the the beginnings of techno really happened in Detroit. Yes, and sometimes it's difficult for people to, for example, consider when they hear techno, they don't necessarily think of this as a as a black music form, and that's because it's so radically different sounded than, let's say, uh, disco music or R&B or, or soul. But that that's it's, it's important to remind people that it is an African American form. Uh, of music in its origin, but also with with all of those different influences that I've just mentioned. So, um, Kraftwerk, Yellow Magic Orchestra from from Japan, um, mm. Giorgio Moroder, um, Italian, who was making music in Munich. All of these people are very important for the uh, foundation of techno. But I would say, as as music that's being called techno, this was coming out of Detroit first. Okay. I think we should mention here that you've written a, a, a thesis about this particular movement, right? Is that, I don't yeah. want to call it a movement. That sounds cheesy, but, you know, or is yeah. it, was it a movement? Would you call it that or no? Yes, no, no, no. It was uh, definitely, it started as a subculture in Detroit and, and, and you're right. So I, I was this teenager. I experienced this scene starting um, in Berlin. And while I would say that Berlin became a kind of spiritual and actual home, fought for, for techno when mm. when that scene started in the early 90s in berlin the music itself was mostly not coming from from berlin that the djs mm. played it was mostly coming from um detroit chicago new york but then also from manchester sheffield london from from belgium so and also 
cities like Frankfurt um, and, and, and Munich in, in Germany, but not so much Berlin initially was more of a DJ and club city and less of a producer city. Um, hmm. But um, so can you remind me of the question again? Yeah, you, you were going to tell us about the, the uh, thesis that you wrote yes. about this. So then I... Then I became a student, and then I, I studied um, for some time in the U.S., and then I, I wrote my master's thesis on actually Detroit techno as an African-American art form, because back then this music wasn't considered African-American music. And even in the academic world, um, if black music was taught at American universities, it basically stopped with with hip-hop. Mm. And... Um, yeah, my, my aim was to change that and to show the story continues um, and it includes music um, that maybe people wouldn't, back then at least, consider to be black music. Is that because it's it has no sort of human imprint, really? It, it's really machine music, right? Yes, and it's so, if you look at previous or oh, still current definitions of what is black music, um <laughs> Like these definitions include, for example, that a lot of this music is referencing an African American past, either in the choice of samples or um, if you look at jazz music, um, there's always like often a call and response or uh, some kind of signifiers that that's incorporating previous forms of, mm. of that culture. And then the performance aspect is usually very important in African American music traditions. Um, then there's this whole trope of uh, music coming from the street, um, which Detroit is not, I mean, it was coming from an upwardly mobile um, working class, which is also quite fascinating. So, so those Detroit DJs and producers, they were part of a high school scene in, in Detroit. And most of their parents were working for the automobile industry which was huge in the 1980s mm. um, in, in detroit mm -hmm. and these automobile companies had very strong unions so actually financially speaking those families were upwardly mobile and through the music that they were listening to they also wanted to differentiate differentiate themselves from their peers so they were really into european since pop but also european fashion and clothing and styles reading like uk fashion or trend magazines so it was this whole subculture that started in in detroit um and yes i i think you can definitely call it a, a culture and a, and a movement back then mm. i mean one thing i read several years ago mm -hmm. was that the techno the sound of techno the, the mechanical sound of it was really mirroring the sound of a a car production line in Detroit. Is that is that a misquote or is is that for no? Real? That's that's. I mean, that's what the musicians themselves and, for example, Juan Atkins um, were saying. Because also, Detroit, in quite a few ways, was also a, quite a desolate city at the moment because the the peak of its its industrial peak was already over, um, mm. and um, a lot of buildings were abandoned. So. On the one hand, you had the rhythms of the machines and the images of those factories, but combined with a pretty dystopian outlook as well. It was not just um, super optimistic and, and, and positive. And I think that combination um, was very important um, to Detroit and maybe an explanation why this music also um, was made in Detroit and um, maybe not in some 
well-off suburb in the United States. Hmm. So is it the case that techno made the jump to Europe before it really sort of spread its wings in the USA? Yes, def definitely. And I mean, one of the main differences and one of the big explanations why this music um, took hold so fast in Berlin is that in most places around the world, really, or in the UK, um, in other cities, in Germany, in France, um, when people were playing techno music, you didn't really have dedicated venues that that fitted this this music and this this culture. You basically had your discotheques that you already had since the early or, or mid nineteen eighties, and then promoters took over one night and made like a house and techno night. But in Berlin, you had these abandoned buildings, like very concrete buildings that you just filled with a simple sound system and lots of um, smoke and um, yeah, strobe lights. Huh. And this kind of industrial um, feeling of those um, yeah, abandoned warehouses, um, it really resonated well with this very raw music coming out of Detroit. And in Detroit itself, people didn't have these these club spaces or, mm. or or not that culture so i would say that techno how it developed in berlin was a combination of this music that was imported but maybe almost equally important was that you had the right space and also this energy created through the fall of the wall that yes people were just excited i mean you were meeting people from the other side of the city for the first time and that sparked such a unique um, energy and that you have this in this spaces that were kind of neutral and that people from the east and west also discovered at the same time because they weren't used as music spaces before and I think it's this whole combination of things that really um, yeah, made techno as, as big a subculture as it was in the 90s in Berlin. So why were there so many sort of abandoned spaces? Was it because the wall fell or did they just already exist on the eastern side? No, so <clears throat> those, those places where a lot of them were either industrial places or, for example, Trezor is a famous example of... Um, Mm. Um, that was a bank wall that belonged to a department store and that had already been empty for, I think, two decades. Or oh, okay. another famous club, for example, was Ewerk, similar to Berghain or the Kraftwerk where Tresor is in today. They were former power stations who were also not used any longer. So they were like already abandoned buildings in the GDR, but... Mm. They became super central because they were on the border between often East and, and West Berlin. So they were very easily reachable for people in the West and the East. Um, and there was just this kind of anarchic situation where it was quite easy to get a to find someone who has the keys to these buildings or people would just break in and find some kind of power connection to these buildings. And then following that, it was fairly easy to get like a three-month lease for these buildings. And mm. the police didn't really control um, any or like any fire exits or safety concerns. So it's just astonishing how much freedom there was and how much people could just do by taking over a building that was empty. So is this how, I mean, is this a good time to introduce somebody like Dimitri Hagerman? Yes, into, into the story, like he was the, the, the well, he was the one of the one of no, I wouldn't say the one of the founders of Trezor, right? Yes, of both Trezor, the club, and then um, shortly after also the record label. Hmm. And I would say that 
two of the most important people for first bringing techno from Detroit to Berlin and then establishing and um, yeah, progressing that scene in Berlin were Dimitri Hegemann on the one side mm. and then um, Mark Ernestos on the other side. Um, so Dimitri Hegemann was um, founding this, this club and the record label Tresor, who from the very beginning had a very strong relationship to the producers that I just mentioned from mm -hmm. uh, Detroit. They'd met each other a couple of years earlier at a music conference in New York. Oh, and then, that's where it happened. Okay, yes. like, oh, that's that's a blank that I needed <laughs> filling. Like, how did Dimitri Hageman meet all of these techno producers? Like, he did just, yeah, just a, yeah. yeah so, so it was actually an industry meeting um, hmm. in New York, and then um, Dimitri Hageman had a record label um, called Interfish already before that, and that was putting out more experimental electronic industrial music, hmm. and um, one of those bands was an in like a very small unknown industrial band called final cut and jeff mills was actually a member of that industrial band so there was already a connection with jeff mills preceding techno uh, okay. and then when techno came along and jeff mills was part of underground resistance that connection was already there and when he heard the music he immediately thought okay we have to get these guys over to berlin they have to play at the club we want to um, actually start a record label uh, to put out their music. So Trezor was actually started at a record company to put out the music from, from Underground Resistance um, first. So that was that connection. And then Mark Ernestos, who I just mentioned, um, he started a record shop, which is still around today and very influential, called Hardwax in Kreuzberg. Mm -hmm. And that was even before the techno scene really started, Mark Inestas had the idea to have an import dance shop that was focused on bringing in house soul funk records um, from the US to Berlin. And then he just realized that a lot of those records were coming out first of Chicago and then Detroit. And then that sound from the records coming from Detroit was uh, quite different from the one in Chicago. Mm. And so he basically made the whole music through his store available so that he, people could buy them in Berlin because, I mean, there was no though, no internet or, and you couldn't just go into a huge department or city shop to buy this music. You, you Back then you had to rely on specialist um, record shops to get this music. Um, so both of these people who are still very influential today, Mark Ernestus and Dimitri Hegemann, they were like key for making this connection between the cities of Berlin and Detroit. Can you explain or flesh out the story of who underground resistance are? Please? Um, yes. So it was actually a, a quite anonymous collective um, when they started out, consisting of Mad Mike Banks, uh, Jeff Mills, and uh, Robert Hood. Mm -hmm. And what was different with them to the artists that preceded them is they really... I mean, they also put out more house-sounding records, but the sound that they became then famous for, for was a very, like, much harder, more industrial sound of of, of techno, hmm. and that sound specifically um, resonated well in in Berlin. So a lot of people, when they thought about techno in the early '90s, they didn't really think about inner city or those earlier records from Detroit. For them, 
techno was the hard sound being made by um, underground resistance. And then underground resistance were also important because they were radically political and they saw themselves as really like a force, like a, the techno version of of uh, public enemy, uh, basically. Right. And um, this is still resonating with a lot of people uh, today. And that, I mean, still today, there's a lot of people who who stress and for whom it's important that also has uh, techno has a very important political component to it and that it's music made by marginalized people or at least partly um, originally. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's, especially in Berlin, there's still this huge miss. You still... Uh, just the other day, I was actually at a at a jazz concert by a famous South African jazz pianist, and even there, I saw people in underground resistance T-shirts. So you still huh. see that um, today in Berlin. So did did Mark Ernestus have to sort of basically just fly from Berlin to Detroit and try and sort of fumble his way through making business connections in order to get vinyl shipped back to his hardware store in Berlin? I think that came a little bit later. Initially, it was just ah, okay. making a lot of phone calls to ah. distributors and figuring out and insisting on which records he wants, which records he doesn't want. But then actually flying regularly to Detroit was very important um, to make those connections and make... Yeah, because then, I mean, Mark Ernestos did not just run um, Hardwax. He also made music uh, together with Moritz von Oswald under the names uh, Basic Channel. He started, they started their own record label, uh, Chain Reaction, and then later on also released as Rhythm and Sound. And with each of those product uh, projects, they they kind of made their own definition of a certain sound that... Mm -hmm was partly inspired by the music also coming out of uh, Detroit, for example, but then being equally influential on those um, producers in Detroit. So there was a lot of collaboration going on. Um, Mark Ernestos and Moritz and Oswald doing remixes for people in the US and vice versa, or having their records being pressed in Detroit. Um, a lot of collaboration going on with these producers uh, in those two cities. So what what year are we really talking about with say with Basic Channel Maurizio, um, and so, this yeah sorry yeah yeah so this started then a little bit like after the initial spark so mm -hmm. um, uh, there wasn't really much techno music coming out of Berlin before 1992, mm -hmm. and then with Basic Channel um, a lot of their key productions came out in 94, 95. And then I would say also that techno peaked, commercially speaking, in 1997 in Berlin. So um, something that Berlin was also famous for was this big street parade that was happening in Berlin since mm -hmm. um, the early 90s called the Love Parade. And in 1997, that Love Parade had, I think, something like 1.5 million people attending. Like it's, it's a number that's almost impossible to, to grasp. Um, mm. these days that you had uh, 1.5 million people dancing to techno music um, in this heart of Berlin. That was the peak commercial, commercially when a lot of people were from that scene were also saying the music has sold out completely. It was dominating MTV, radio, the charts. And I'm not speaking about the music here from, from basic channel, but, but more commercially sounding forms of mm. uh, more mainstream sounding forms of, of, of techno music. Um, 
And then you also following that you had this kind of um, reaction towards this huge popularity. So, for example, in 1989, that was also an important time. The the Club Ostgut started in Berlin, which was the predecessor to Berghain. Mm -hmm. And that was taking the music back to its more like darker, heavier, more industrial sounds. And it was also very important that this was um, a predominantly uh, gay club um, because Berlin always had this big uh, gay uh, subculture in, in techno music. Okay. So who can I ask who started? Yeah. Was it Dr. Motta that started the Love Parade? Yes, he was one of the people starting starting the Love Parade. That's correct. Right. What year was that? 93, 92? No, I believe it was already 1918. Really? That early? Or okay. Nine? Okay. Or 90. So, uh, but that was just like a couple of dozen people on the street. Mm. And then the first like big one where you also had people coming from other cities to Berlin was in 1992. So already 30 years ago by now. John, what was your first exposure to techno um, being in the UK? Well, I didn't really kind of get straight into techno. Mm -hmm. I came into it through the ambient end of things. I guess the first thing that I ever heard, which was pure electronic music, was the Orbs Blue Room. Mm -hmm. And I think I was amazed by that because there was a 40-minute version. Yes. Right, there's this thing that goes on for 40 minutes. And at the time, it didn't really click. It took about a year later before I really kind of was exposed to another compilation, a bit of Orbital, a bit of Aphex Twin. And then I st started to kind of look around. And then there was the uh, the Trans Europe Express compilation. Yes, and I then, remember those. Um, and also some of the early Warp releases. Mm -hmm. So things like the artificial intelligence album which is coming out on vinyl again next week yes um and then the artificial intelligence series so like b12 polygon window or black Teca, dog productions black dog productions yeah those four i kind of really got into but none of those i would ever describe as techno yeah although they probably wouldn't exist without techno I agree with that for sure. Yeah. So, and there's, yeah. there's also a direct connection um, because you just mentioned that your initial spark might have been the Orb. And one mm -hmm. of the members of Orb back then was uh, Thomas Fehlmann from Berlin. And Correct. Yes. He's also a very important figure in that he was already making music long before techno came around in Germany mm. and in the UK. He was actually coming more of a post-punk new wave scene, being originally from Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And... Um, being a member of a band called Pali Schaumburg that then later on also Moritz from Oswald from Basic Channel was a member of. But he was, um, he made like Germany's first techno compilation, I think also in, in 1990, and then um, went on to make a lot of great techno recordings under his own name. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Thomas Fellman's uh, solo work, especially. And in yes. fact, I, I really do think that he is the the lifeblood of the orb. And when he's not part of the orb, they kind of lose it a little bit for me. I know he's kind of in and out and out yeah. again now, but I, there's that insistent swing and pulse to the orb, orb's early recordings that kind of crops up again, maybe about five years ago and then went away again as he came and went. Yeah, I agree. Um, and yeah, but also in the UK, there was the um, all that sort of LFO, tricky disco also on warp. But I wasn't, really into techno 
I guess until about 95 when I started going to a club called Atomic Jam in <laughs> Birmingham. Have you, do you know about Atomic yes, Jam? Yes, I have right. been, but I, I'm aware of it, yeah. Right. So I think it was like it was held at the same venue that ran House of God, which I never went to. Mm-hmm. But, but I think that's where Surgeon started out. Is that right? I'm not sure if it's exactly that club, but I mean, of course, the, the whole, like in the mid 90s, probably those producers coming out of Birmingham, like Surgeon and Regis uh, mm. and others, that was probably the biggest creative, like, wave of, uh, yeah, fresh stuff uh, happening to techno in the mid 1990s. Mm. But I always found in the 90s, I found Surgeon stuff far too mechanical to listen to at home. <laughs> Which is why I was I kind of gravitated towards the Ortecas and the B12s because yes. it was more designed for home listening. Mm-hmm. But I think my exposure to techno in clubs al- allowed my brain to sort of ease more easily accommodate techno at home after the fact, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's also something that I'm wondering, but I can't answer for myself: is how many <laughs> people are out there who enjoy listening to techno at home who've never been to a club? Right. Yeah, because I. I I mean, a lot of people tend to perceive techno as it's it's mindless club music, right? This is what they say, but I don't see that at all because for me, it's the subtle changes that go on in this fairly yeah. kind of uniform structure so, that make it interesting to listen to. So I would <laughs> I would only disagree in saying, as with every music, I mean, there is probably a ton of mindless uh, uh, techno music out there, um, and and a lot of stuff that I wouldn't enjoy listening to at home. Mm. But I think there's also quite a lot of things specifically to techno that is great for listening to at home. And and one of those things that that it can, by all its harshness or coldness, it it can be very personal music in the sense also that compared to other forms of of, of music, the artists making this music, they have control over each aspect of the recording because it's basically the producer is a, composer producer mm-hmm. um uh, like a, more like a kind of sound sculptor uh, and mixing engineer all in 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 one in in one person so um the artist can really control every aspect of the sound and there's often so many details to discover in techno recordings and also as you said like the the, the very nature of techno that it is this ever changing same Mm. And on first listen, you might not notice that there are actually, that there is any progression or, or movement, um, but you can really get lost in those details. And that's what I enjoy about uh, listening to techno at home. I agree. And I also think that because it's all artificially created using machines, more or less, that, and because, as you say, the artist has complete control over the sound of everything, what electronic music, I like to call it electronic music just for a moment. What electronic music artists for me do is they create their own little worlds. You know, they're world building with sound. And I found that absolutely fascinating with artists like the Future Sound of London or Global Communication. I know they're more the sort of, again, the ambient home listening thing, but they created this alien world. And a lot of what I enjoyed when I first started getting into electronic music was the fact it was very futuristic, future-facing or futuristic. And there was a heavy sort of, um, well, in the UK at least, a sort of maybe a space travel or alien vibe to it. I'm thinking specifically of Eat Static. Yes. Who were very popular because they came off the back of Osric Tentacles and, and 
a more of a sort of I don't know what you would really call that prog, prog rock kind of vibe. I don't know, but certainly not a techno vibe. And then you also had what were they named? Um, Bandulu. Bandulu. I, yeah. so I, I've not heard somebody mention Bandulu <laughs> for years, and I liked some of their stuff, like Cornerstone. I still play yeah. the album, but they, I think they put out far more records than ever I could even That's conceive true. of. Right. But 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 what you're saying also reminds me that there's this cliche of um, describing a lot of like techno or, or electronic music as um, soundtracks for movies that don't exist. Right. And. But that, I think that that's valid because, I mean, there is a strong connection between the kind of soundscapes that a lot of artists, um, and there's also a lot of techno artists who on the side uh, make ambient music or more, um, yeah, listening uh, music. And mm. uh, who then also, I mean, uh, quite a few of them also then got later asked to actually make music for soundtracks because there is this strong connection. Right, but I think this harks back to what I was saying about world building. Yes. You know, like it's it sounds the reason people kind of think of it as an imaginary soundtrack is because they've been drawn into this world that this electronic music producer has created and laid out in front of them. I mean, it's astonishing what can be done. It really is. And 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 also the the music it it lets more space for your own for your own thinking or for your own imagination. Because if you have music with vocals on, or that's even with regards to its melody, that's more concrete than techno, then mm. you kind of are already given a narrative. Uh, but with techno, because it's so abstract, um, you can either come up with your own story or, I mean, there's also great like abstract instrumental concept albums, for example, from the, Detroit artist Drexia um, or Drexia. Mm. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's really world building, as you mentioned. You know, I think Brian Eno explained it exceptionally well one time, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but I'll give it my <laughs> best shot. He said that music that has a vocal is, is closer to a portrait painting. You have a, a figure who's central mm -hmm. in, the, in the mix, if you like, and you're drawn to that person. So your focus is already sort of established by that character in the middle of the song, because mm -hmm. it's usually a song. Whereas with, and I think he was talking about ambient music, he, said, he was saying ambient music is more like, an, more like a landscape painting without a human being in it. So instead of your focus being drawn to say like a portrait painting, like the, the one single person, the subject of the painting, it can, it can wander across the landscape that's been you know, painted in front of you. Yeah, John, maybe that's also why I'm still confused when, when I see, and sometimes that, that happens when I see techno albums or techno records with a portrait of the artist on the cover. Right. I, I always think it doesn't feel right. It's Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I'm, I have to just look at, scan my wall of CDs of electronic music, and I just, I don't know how many of those feature, yeah, just the artist. I mean, Robert Hood did this quite a lot, right? He put himself on many of his album covers in various yeah, forms. Yeah, and in, in, in a maybe extreme way also FX Twin. Yeah, yes, that's true, actually. But I think there was always a certain amount of grotesque distortion yeah. to those images, yeah. which, which I think reflected the music within. Yeah. So, but also he's a bit of a larrikin, right? Somebody yeah. who likes a bit of a laugh. So maybe he was doing he, it for those reasons. Yeah, and he was, I'm sure that he was also doing it too, because back then everyone was very, being super serious about making electronic music and he just wanted to, yeah, make fun out of that. Yeah, but I was actually, so I'm making a series of videos 
on my Patreon at the moment about key releases that got me into electronic music, Ah. right? And I made one yesterday, and one of the albums I held up to the camera was the the, the first Apollo Ambient Collection, which has the most, by today's standards, most horrendous cover art, because it's that that um, pseudo-artistic... drawing of an alien on a land oh, you know yes. with a, yeah. just dr- dreadful stuff but at the time we all thought it was pretty cool uh-huh. but and the music on that particular compilation is a little bit dated but there's still some good stuff on there especially from david morley um and yeah also biosphere actually yes. do you know what it's interesting biosphere's first couple of albums especially microgravity was what pulled me more towards techno because it had more of a techno pulse a lot of the tracks on it it was a mixture of ambient soundscapes and then fairly insistent beats yes and i think that's how i got j- pulled into it really from th- that kind of angle but I, I, do you remember that apollo compilation do you remember yes yes that? i do right and i mean uh, apollo of course is also um it's an offshoot of rns records yes who at the time we're also putting out a lot of records i mean by fx twin but also by those um detroit producers such as uh, kenny larkin and mm. um Rhythm is Rhythm. Um, and I still, I mean, I think they're still putting out interesting stuff today. They are. And I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for them to reissue the, uh, uh, which, which album is it? Electronic Highway by CJ Bolland. Yeah. I want a vinyl copy of that. <laughs> so I'm just waiting for that to come out again. It's only a matter <laughs> of time. But yeah, so we've talked a bit about the UK scene, uh-huh. unless there's you, anything else you want to add about British people and techno and <laughs> no, maybe that it's interesting that early on a lot of the major or, or best, in my opinion, music coming out of the UK was actually not coming out of London, but more coming from up north. Yes, um, yeah, Sheffield and Manchester, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah, that's that's just interesting, and maybe it's also partly because of uh, maybe of of that industrial nature of the music. That um, a city like Sheffield um, is probably closer to the city of Detroit than London would be. Did um, Factory Records and the Hacienda play into any of this? Um, so the Hacienda, famous nightclub uh, in Manchester, was one of the first clubs, uh, if not the first in the UK, with having regular dance nights on. And it mm. was the nightclub which was also founded by New Order, who were also a heavy influence on this first generation of, of Detroit musicians. So everything is, is, is kind of uh, connected. Um, but also there were these recording studios in Sheffield um, called Phone, F-O-N, mm. I think run by the Cabaret Voltaire guys. So there is also a connection between the ah. industrial music roots um, in Sheffield. Um And then some of the artists that early on released on on Warp Records. Um, So, for example, there was also this project GTO, uh, Greater Mm -hmm. Than One. And um, then also one of the founding members of uh, Cabaret Voltaire um, was part of Warp. So, yeah, also in Sheffield, there there, there was this connection between an earlier generation of more experimental, industrial people making um, music and then continue making techno music. Was that Richard H. Kirk? Yes, sorry, that was Richard H. Kirk. Didn't he do an album called The Conversation? Yeah. On, I think it was on Warp. I think I bought that. I don't, I don't have any more, but it was quite dark. 
Yes, I think sadly he passed uh, yeah. away uh, like last year or so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was lots of cross pollination going on, but I, I think I was probably not into it enough to really know about it, and also because there was no internet, and I was just reliant on the enemy melody maker and, and sounds, the the music press at the time, and then the monthlies like well, Select Magazine came later, but they didn't really do all that much coverage of electronic music. Not a huge amount. It was fairly sort of tokenistic. So I don't really know. Maybe John Peel was where you heard it, but I wasn't yeah. listening to John Peel at the time. I was listening to um, Mark Riley and Lard and things like that. But I was actually also getting to know about music from Germany through John Peel. Uh, really? Because... Um, But in Berlin, you had the unusual situation uh, because you had a lot of uh, British soldiers um, since the end of the Second World War being stationed in in Germany that you could also have um, uh, receive British radio. And John Peel did a show specifically for BFBS. It was the British Forces um, mm -hmm. radio. Uh, and so as a teenager, I could listen to to John Peel every every week although there was no no internet uh, and usually if you were in other parts of europe you wouldn't have had the chance to listen to him and so that's actually how i discovered a lot of that music ah uh, okay I, i i guess i just wasn't hip enough at the time <laughs> i wasn't cool enough Heiko. like i was just you know just well, tr tr but yeah. maybe also where you where there was too much going on i had the feeling as a teenager before the techno scene started that there weren't Or at least where I was in Berlin, there it, it didn't seem that much happening. So radio became very important for me for discovering music. Right. I think I got got into most of the stuff that I discovered. Well, yeah, most of the stuff that I discovered was through my local record store. Mm -hmm. and, and just going in there and just seeing like Speed Jack. Who is Speed Jack? Okay, I need to have a listen to this at the counter and have a listen and then maybe buy it or not, you know? So just a just a lot of experimentation and just trying to put the pieces together, you know, like from your record store, from what mates tell you, from the music press. Maybe what's also a little bit hard for people to understand these days, it's just how important record labels were back then for discovering music. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, these days when you go on Spotify or Apple Music, you don't really know so much about the record label or you don't care or you don't discover music through through a record label. But Back then, that's mostly what what you did, and a record label that was specifically important for me were um, Mute Records out of mm -hmm. um, London, whose founder Daniel Miller is actually living like us in Berlin um, these days. Mm. Um, and I mean, they had early on big bands like uh, Depeche Mode, but were also releasing German music like Einstürzen Neubauten and yes. Deutsche Amerikanische Freundschaft. And then they started uh, a techno offshoot in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah, early 90s probably called uh, Nova Mute. Mm. And that became a home for people like Richie Horton, aka Plastic Man, um, and a, a lot of other great music. And for example, I discovered a lot of music by just um, back then when you bought a record, um, sometimes they included like a piece of paper, which the catalog numbers of, of their of their previous releases and then just mm. going through them and discovering a lot of music through that. And, and Mute was one of the great connectors for me from music from the 80s on to the 90s uh, and then further on. It's really interesting you talk about that concept of discovering music through labels because when I first moved to Berlin and first went into Hardwax, 
I suffered a bit of a shock to see that everything was categorized and, and filed by label because I'd never seen that before. And it hadn't, it did, certainly didn't exist in Australia, but also I was buying CDs in the UK, but they weren't, they were just, it was just like there was an ambient techno section in my local store or whichever yeah. town I was in. So seeing, you know, what Mark and Estes had done by building that shop around labels was both massively confusing for, for the newcomer. Cause I'm like, okay, where's Speedy J? Okay. I've got to think about what's, well, yeah, what label, you know, he might've recorded for and where I'll find that. So it was, I've got used to, well, become better used to it now, but I, I think most people would find that an alien concept. I yeah. I think it's, it's, it's really alienating. And it, I mean, it, in a way it creates another <laughs> barrier because if yes. you're not familiar with the label names and only with some artists, you, you really have to dig into, okay, uh, what does this label represent? But if mm. I look at my record or at my CD collection, it's really a mixture of sorting stuff through alphabetically by artists or by, by record labels. And I mean, the, the job that I'm doing currently, my, my, my day job is working at a download and an online platform for electronic music called mm -hmm. Beatport. And one of the things it's, it's mostly a store for, for, for DJs, um, mm. So if you're a DJ, um, then you're likely to get your music, um, on that platform. And a lot of DJs, they, they dig and look through music by going through, a still today through a record label spec catalog. And then, because the thinking is if it's a heavily created record label, if you like some of this stuff, you might also like others. So I used to think that way about warp until about the year 99. And then they, they really diversified. And then I, I was. I was at sea with what they were releasing, you know, because when they were doing, um, was it Grizzly Bear? I'm like, yeah. uh, okay, all right, well, I'm out because I just, I can't, I, I can no longer use the label as the guide. For, 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 for me, it's different. So I, <laughs> I stay, I stayed and I just diversified with Warp. Really? Yeah. Okay. So I love Grizzly Bear, for example. Really? I just couldn't get into them. I really, I really couldn't get into them at all. I did try because it was Warp. I thought I've got to give this a shot. And it's the same with Flying Lotus. I just, yeah. there's, I have a barrier. I, I love the imagery. I love all the graphics and all, the, but the music, I'm like, ah, what, what? No, I can't do this. I don't know why, <laughs> but, but it's just, I, you know, it obviously comes yeah. down to personal taste, but, but I think Warp moved away from that sort of uh, quite, probably quite rightly away from that sort of cold home listening electronic music that they probably, they probably box themselves into a bit of a corner with that and needed to get out lest they become a bit of a cliche or maybe yeah. they'd already become a cliche at that point. I don't know. But I have the feeling that these days it's still a good, good, a good combination. So, I mean, they just put out great new albums by Plaid or Mount Kimby. Um, but then they also have great like indie rock records out. It's, I think it, for me, it still makes sense. Yeah. I guess because I, I lacked so much focus in, in the early nineties in trying to f discover stuff, uh -huh. the label thing was never really a good guide. And then, the only one I had was Warp, and then they just went <laughs> in a billion directions at once. So I'm like, okay. So I really didn't get into the label side of things until I moved to Berlin and started just rooting around hard wax and to a lesser extent, baseball. Yeah. You know? So I didn't even, this is really embarrassing to admit this, but I'm, I've admitted this before on a podcast and I'll say it again, <laughs> right? I wasn't really aware of the basic channel stuff until I moved here because it wasn't part of the, yeah. 
the UK techno, I, I don't even call it techno. I mean, I know it's called dub techno mm -hmm. now, but it's, it's a little bit more abstract than that in places. But I wasn't really aware. So when I first moved here, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. How have I never heard this? So I went out one day and bought <laughs> all of it. I bought all the basic channel 12 inches, all the Maurizio 12 inches. I, I had heard of Maurizio oh, actually about, about five or 10 years before because it was reviewed in Pitchfork, the, the compilation CD, yeah. the M-series CD. And I thought that was really good. So I bought that, but I, I didn't really know what it was. So well, I'd forgotten. So yeah, when I came here, I started to dig into that and to the Oscar Torn catalog because obviously being a spin-off from the Berghain, uh -huh. you know, that was interesting to see what they were putting out. And lots of great stuff, actually, not all of it banging club music, like Answer Code Re Request, I really like. Uh -huh. I like I like some of Steffi stuff. Oh God, who else? I mean, Planetary Assault Systems is banging techno as far as I'm concerned, but yeah. a lot of a lot of Luke Slater's stuff. I think he's got gotten better. I think he's really high. And I mean, Luke Slater, yeah. because we didn't hadn't mentioned him previously, no. he was also one of the people who very early on made techno from the UK. And yes, that's also interesting. That I had that revelation like a couple of weeks ago when I was dancing to a set from Robert Hood at at Berghain, and his daughter that he now also makes music with under the name Floorplan or the alias Floorplan was mm -hmm. sitting next to him. And I th I'd first actually listened to him back then when Underground Resistance were playing at the Trezor in 91 or 92. And wow. I think it's it, it's amazing that these people are, that there are people who, who are doing this for the for 30 years now, because back then, I mean, they they probably wouldn't have thought that they would do this for another two years even, because it wasn't like a career that you could... Back then, you didn't see yourself as I'm a DJ, I'm an electronic music producer, and that's my profession, because there wasn't any history of that profession around. So to see these people still being as dedicated and, and still made, putting out great music um, three decades later, um, yeah, I was just happy to see that. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way about Richie Horton. I mean, yes. I, he had a bit of a, in my in my eyes, a bit of a wobble in the in the 2000s where I think he things went a bit too minimal and a bit too ploddy, mm -hmm. but his albums, especially the '90s Plastic Man stuff, are, are peerless, like truly peerless. I mean that that whole yeah that ten year period where I think he was doing stuff that nobody else was, well not not necessarily daring to do, but he was doing stuff that people followed. Like he was definitely a leader, and probably is again now. Um, but again, he's somebody who's been around what since like the. What, 89? Yeah, yeah, or 90, 90, yeah. Yeah, so I think it's, it, as you say, it's interesting to see that these, I, I look at a lot of the lineups, Heiko, on, <laughs> on club nights, right? And I look at how many, what I consider to be old techno dudes are headlining. And it seems to be very dominated by guys that, I have to say, it is mainly guys, I mean, who started in the early 90s, Chris Liebing, um, Joachim Park, Tony, Surgeon, yeah, Richie Horton, like these names come up again and again and again on lineups. And I don't want to get into the, 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 the sort of the socio-political yeah. debate about gender splitting a lineup because I think that is important. I'm not dodging it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm what I'm talking about here is just, it, I'm talking about the age of these people, not their gender, right? Just, just you look at techno lineups now, it's, it's a lot of the same names as 30 or 40 years ago. 
I, I, I agree. And partly I think that's good, but also, and especially maybe amplified by the last two and a half years of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's also been some great changes where you have a lot of, um, younger people and maybe people who've only been really making music for the past two or three years who are really Mm. breaking through and uh, can become headline artists and who are making great music and who are um, either female or non-binary or maybe also coming out of uh, from places that are not seen as traditional centers of electronic music Mm. so I see a lot of more perspectives where from people um, making music that maybe previously didn't have access to that, which I think it's also great. Yeah, I mean, you're more plugged it plugged uh-huh. into this than I am for sure, and maybe this is a reflection of me just following the people that I've always followed. But I do see people like Amelie Lenz uh-huh. and um, who's the Italian uh, girl who Deborah De Luca. No, um, just um, put out um, something on Confidence. Yes, yes, yeah. uh, I can never say her name properly, so I'm glad <laughs> you said it. Um, yeah, so I, I do notice these people, but I don't really have a lot of time to kind of go digging around into into their catalogues, which is sad, really. I mean, I did listen to Amelie Lenz's Fabric Mix, and I liked it a lot. But, I, I, yeah, I don't have the time to sort of... Maybe, I mean, how do you cope with this, Psycho, yourself? Like, with... <laughs> With, list, with keeping abreast of everything that's gone on in the history of techno in the last 30 years, but also having the energy to dig into new stuff. I mean, first, I think <laughs> you, you, you have to be excited by, by new music. If, 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 if your mindset is that you just enjoy what's being made in the past, then mm. that's not very helpful. So I still have the passion to discover new things. And then you just need to have your, I mean, you need, you need to have time to listen to music. And I think you also need to have your, filters or voices that you trust or ways of discovering music so for me it's a combination of um reading online blogs um listening to dj mixes what Mm. what are the tracks that a new artist that people are um including in these tracks then i mean on beatport also there's such a constant stream of music and we have a great creation curation team um, that is highlighting new music but then also still personal recommendations speaking to artists and asking them which new artists have you been listening to um, sometimes it's also just helpful to to look at the lineups of um, clubs such as Berghain or, or Fabric in the UK and see what new names um, they have and it's often worth listening to their stuff mm. Yeah, I mean, that's how I discovered Forest Drive West uh-huh. was from a recommendation from Andy Baumecker. Yes. And, and it was just just for a conversation. But I don't have enough, I guess, here in my little sort of hi-fi bubble, I don't get the time to sort of sit down, Heiko, and go, right, okay, for the next two hours, I'm just going to mess around on SoundCloud and see what new stuff I can find. But, but I mean, this is, we, we've talked about techno as listening music, and I think maybe, yeah, maybe people don't, think that necessarily but also i also think it takes time to to get into this music because you can't it does just having it played like such as a pop song as a background and then say ah that's a nice pop song because i'm humming along to it 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 really takes time to dig into this music and you kind of have to listen to the music actively and not do much else to right to to really connect with it so one thing that i do use and i do use this for all forms of music I mean, are you aware, aware of the software called Rune? It's like a playback yeah, I'm, system. I'm, I'm aware of it, but I'm, I'm not using it myself. Okay. So what it does, it has this thing where, a bit like streaming services do as well, it plays similar music once the, pl- the current playlist has ended. So it keeps going and keeps playing 
new stuff or stuff that you haven't heard before that might not be from your library because it can pull from Tidal and Cobras. <laughs> and I find that very helpful in discovering new artists. And that's how I have discovered certain artists. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, maybe, oh yeah, I don't know how you say it. Is it SND and RTN or sound and return or send and return? Ah, so I, yeah, I think it is, but I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure myself. Right. So I discovered like a dub techno EP that they made last mm -hmm. year and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. So I couldn't wait to, I bought that and they, they, I think they just put out a new one. So I bought that because I saw it on Haha ha Fowl's website yeah. and I just thought, okay, I'm just going to get that no matter what. It's going to be great. Um, so there are little pockets where I get time to go, okay, yeah, that, that, and that, and join the dots here and there. And also, there are certain artists, mainstream artists, I do look at who's remixing them. So yeah. Bjork, Bjork is a great example. Like who's remixing Bjork right now is a great way to, to discover artists who are really at the cutting edge. Radiohead used to be like that, but not so much anymore. Um, but I think there are certain mainstream artists like that who I, yeah, can, it's also a good way into techno music, isn't it? Because you, you hear a song you like by a, like Bjork, and then you hear a remix version, which is a bit strange, right? Yeah. And that's, but that's also why I, I mean, uh, Bjork is one of my idols and I mean, I'm, I'm sure that she also has great people who, who give great recommendations for her, but over the years, she's still like interested in so much cutting edge music and has a really mm -hmm. good sense for, for interesting new music coming out and is also in a way supporting newer artists through these remix commissions. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's very important. Um, you mentioned SoundCloud. I've mentioned it as well, but I think, I think we need to maybe just dig into a little bit more because some of my audience might not be aware of what SoundCloud is and of its importance to techno music culture, really. Yeah. So um, me working for Beatport, I, I, I don't really <laughs> need to do, talk maybe about another uh, platform, but I mean, the differentiator is um, like, unlike a record shop like Hardwax or a digital record shop like uh, Beatport, um, SoundCloud is a platform where people can upload their own um, songs. So mm -hmm. it's not coming through a record label or a distributor. And that means also that traditionally and a little bit less so these days that people not only uploaded their own music, but also a lot of their own DJ uh, mixes, yes. even if they didn't have the rights uh, to do that and their own right. edits of um, existing music. So a lot of people have discovered music that's not officially released and not officially available on other platforms um, through SoundCloud and these days also MixCloud and there are other platforms like this. Yeah, I mean, I use SoundCloud mainly for, for DJ mixes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that some D DJ mixes have started to percolate through to Apple Music and think also to Amazon, somebody told me, but I haven't verified that for myself. Yeah. Um, but I find SoundCloud invaluable for just putting on like a resident advisor mix uh -huh. or a Dave Clark radio show or something like uh -huh. that. And I really wish I had more time to listen to Dave Clark's radio shows because he, he really is at the cutting edge of, I and, guess, discovering new artists. And, and, and he's another great example of uh, a UK techno producer who's been around for 30 years mm -hmm. and is still like so much interested in discovering new music. I would even argue that he's better at um, showcasing other people's music than he's been in the last 
couple of years at, at, at making his own music. Yeah, possibly. I've got a funny story about Dave Clark. Uh -huh. do, you want to, do you want to hear yeah, it? Yeah, please. So this is a bit, this is totally embarrassing <laughs> for me, right? So a while back, uh, so I follow Dave Clark on Instagram and a while back he published a photograph of an article he'd written for, I think Sound on Sound magazine. Yes. Um, where he'd reviewed a headphone amplifier. Uh -huh. so, so I'm like, right, that's, <laughs> that's it. I'm going to message the guy and say, look, hey, follow your stuff for many years, but I just noticed you're into sort of hi-fi stuff. I didn't, I had no idea, right? I said, you know, would you be interested in, in chatting on a podcast? And he's like, yeah, absolutely I would. So we tee up a time, um, but he, he, he couldn't use Zencaster, which is what we're using now, uh -huh. right? Because he doesn't use uh, the Google Chrome browser. So he's like, how about we do it using Zoom? I'm like, okay, we'll use Zoom. Uh -huh. Now, when I've done this before, uh, this, this is going to be really, uh, maybe I'll have to cut this out because, <laughs> because it, it's going to make Dave Clark sound bad and it's totally not his fault. Yeah. This is my fault for not checking. So when I've done this before with Zoom, the person at the other end has recorded their own audio, right? Yeah. So, so Dave and I chat for an hour and it's fantastic. We have a chat about his yeah. career. Also, his interest in playback hardware and things yeah. like that. And that, as we get towards wrapping up, I'm like, okay, so you're going to send me the file, right? Yeah. And he's like, oh, what file? What are you oh, talking no, about? Oh, no. So I'm like, oh. <laughs> and it, I could see that he was, well, like, I was, I was mortified from embarrassment, but also I thought it was a little bit funny. And I know that he was annoyed, but also I could see he thought it might be a little bit funny. But and he's, so, <laughs> so we had an hour and a half chat that no one's ever going to hear. Yeah, and it was but, a great conversation. But, but you still had a great conversation. And maybe to, to, to bring this full circle to what you mentioned in the beginning about the um, exhibition that I did, No Photos on the Dance Floor, I, I actually had the pleasure uh, to, um, to guide uh, Dave Clark through that exhibition. Ah, nice. And then at the, because also Dave Clark, he's a great photographer doing yes, analog yes, photography. Yes, yes. And then at the end of the exhibition, he asked me if he could take a photo of me. And I kind of still use this photo from Dave Clark, the photographer, as my mugshot. That's great. That's, <laughs> that's, that's really cool. Yeah. But he, he, he messaged me. Basically, I said to him, like, if you appear on my podcast, I'll donate 100 euros to charity. Hmm. So I, I still did that. But he's during that message exchange of trying to sort out the mechanics of that, he's like, let's revisit this in a year's time. Okay. And I just thought that was brilliant because that's perfect because it needs a year yeah. for both for me to get over my embarrassment <laughs> and him to get over his maybe mild, well, maybe not even mild annoyance. Maybe he was furious. I don't know because <laughs> I've maybe wasted some of his time. But I just thought, yeah, it was. Uh, I was I was a little bit crushed afterwards actually because I thought right finally I get to talk to like a proper techno producer like <laughs> full on somebody I've followed since what ninety yeah. five and yeah so that was it's just it's embarrassing for me but <laughs> yeah whatever shit happens you know it's just the way it goes so now I'm prepared like if I do a Zoom podcast in the future <laughs> I know to record the audio myself for both of us right so yeah I don't know. Um, Heiko, is there anything else we need to cover about techno and really how no. it came? I mean, we've sort of wandered all over the place. I mean, yes. Does it? Do we? I mean, I don't think we even do. We need to have a sort of a tidy ending. I feel like we need to have a, a <laughs> sort of put a neat bow on all of this. I guess. Mate, okay, let me ask you this, yeah. right? So, and we have touched on this already. So, who are some key techno artists that people? 
should maybe think about digging into initially if they have no clue about this particular genre of music? So, I mean, we've already mentioned quite a few of them, but if I want to recap, I definitely, if you haven't come across the music of Basic Channel, Maurizio, the label Chain Reaction, or Rhythm and Sound, all of these are, are the same people making different music under different aliases. Mm-hmm. And it's great music out there. Um, then maybe a German ambient and techno artist that we haven't mentioned yet is uh, Wolfgang Vogt, V-O-I-G-T, from oh, yes. Cologne, yes. Who, who is running the label that you've just mentioned called Compact. Yeah. And he releases music under a lot of different aliases. And for example, his ambient alias is Gas, G-A-S. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he made great, like very sample-heavy techno records under the name Mike Inc. or Laugh Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would recommend him. Um, then we haven't mentioned uh, Ricardo Villalobos yet, um, a Berlin-based uh, producer who made a lot of um, actually great minimal techno, still making great, like, endless 12 to 15-minute uh, tracks. Um, but He's then, also um, an audiophile as well, as far as, far as I know. Oh, he's, he's, he's got a, a studio with a, an amazing sound system. It's, it's mm. one of the best listening experience i've i've ever had sitting wow. in a studio and, and listening to him with him to to, to music but mm. i mean also i mean we've we've talked a lot about a lot of like older established musicians that have been around for a lot of time but i'm equally excited uh, maybe for people to check out um a newer artist um, there's an artist for example from uh, bavaria that i like a lot called ski mask um oh yes yes Evelyn Emerson is an artist who used to live in Berlin, is now back in the States, and I've yeah. included also her in my you know, photos um, compilation, who I like a lot. Then there's a, another Berlin artist called Object. Um, there's a, a great artist called LSDXOXO living in Berlin, currently making uh, great music. So there's a lot of uh, great stuff out there. And then I know that you've also enjoyed like recent albums, for example, by um, Daniel Avery. Yes. Um, then there's a, a new album out by a producer from Detroit called Deep Chord, who's kind of following in the veins of dub techno from Basic Channel. His, his new album's great, yeah. And for people who like this intersection of um, maybe techno and ambient music, there's this ongoing compilation series called um, Air Texture, and this year uh, saw the release of Air Texture 8, uh, compiled by two New York producers called Anthony Naples and DJ Python. And that's one of my favorite like electronic releases this year. I didn't know about that compilation series. I'm going to dig into that. That sounds interesting. <laughs> okay. Because I know who Anthony Naples is yeah. and DJ Python. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's fascinating. Wow. Well, that should give people enough to kind of chew on for now, Heiko. I hope so. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Heiko. It was great even just for me, from a selfish point of view, <laughs> just to be able to talk about techno for an hour. So I I hope it wasn't too tedious for you. No, John, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And then I hope we, we, we didn't bore the audience and that I hope for you out there, there's uh, some stuff to dig into and enjoy. 